John chapter 1 just read. This was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem, Jews of Jerusalem, term is used 70 times in the Gospel of John, those three words, Jews of Jerusalem. One time it is used in a positive sense, one time it is used in a neutral sense. 68 times when the term Jews of Jerusalem is used, it refers to those who are hostile to Jesus. 68 times. And the ones who were hostile to Jesus were the members of the Sanhedrin, the 77 who made up the ruling body of the Jews, both the political nature and the religious nature of that people. 68 times the Jews of Jerusalem involved themselves in the ministry of Jesus. And before he ever appears at age 30, they are already beginning their investigative work as to who he is, why he has come. This was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem, the Sanhedrin, sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. Why were the Levites involved? They were in charge of the temple. They were also involved with the teaching that happened amongst the Jewish people. So the Sanhedrin says to the Levites, who's this John the Baptist? We're hearing about him teaching out there in the wilderness. And the Levites say to the Sanhedrin, we don't know anything about him. And the Sanhedrin says to the Levites, well, you better get your behind out there and find out what this guy is up to. You have not approved his teaching and no one can teach unless they've been approved by the Levites. And the Levites answer to the Sanhedrin. This was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He confessed freely, I am not the Christ, if that is what you think. They ask him, then, who are you? Are you Elijah? He says, I am not. Elijah, 2 Kings 2. Elijah doesn't die. He goes up into heaven in the whirlwind, fiery chariot, chariot. The legend and teaching around the Jewish nation was the fact that before the Messiah came, Elijah would come down from heaven and he would be part of the group that got everything ready for him. Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. He said, are you the prophet, this mysterious one whom the Jews also believed would be involved in the entrance of the Messiah? I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. And they said, who are you then? Who gave you authority to teach as you do? Let us know so that we can give an answer to those who've sent us. And John replied in this way. I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. I'm the voice of one calling in the wilderness. This is literal and this is figurative, dear people. It's literal because that's where he came from. He arrives on the scene at age 30, pretty close to the time Jesus aged when he started his ministry. And he has spent all this time in the wilderness. He is just a kind of freak. Because anyone who was anybody, they grew up in the temple. They would come and be dedicated at age 12. And for the next 18 years, they would spend their time listening to the rabbis and and being at meetings and discussing the teachings John had no training, comes out of the wilderness, 
And he makes his comments. Child of the desert, you read last week in the gospel, he ate locust beans and wild honey, and his garb was made from camel's hair. It was also figurative when the Bible says that he came out of the wilderness. There had been no prophet for 400 years. There had been no prophet in Israel for 400 years. And if there had been no prophet, there had been no word of God. Process had begun 600 years earlier because one empire after another overtook the Israelites. There were the Assyrians, there were the Babylonians, there were the Medo-Persians, there were the Egyptians, there were the Romans. And after the very first empire had taken over the Israelites, brought many of them into captivity, and the ones that were left behind in Jerusalem, they were told, you can no longer practice what you've practiced, you can no longer believe what you believed, and you can no longer teach what you've been teaching. You will now worship the gods of the nation that has overcome you. And after a very brief time, after a hundred years, the prophet Ezekiel writes this in chapter 37. The hand of the Lord was upon me, brought me out by the Spirit, and he set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth, and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry, because the life had been sucked out of them, and the life was the Spirit of God. He asked me, Ezekiel, uh, can these bones live? And I said to him, Lord, only you know the answer to that question. And then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. The sovereign Lord will make his breath enter you. Tendons and flesh will come upon you. And these bones will come back to life. The spirit of God will accomplish this. This is after a hundred years of being in a captivity. And when you were captured by another nation, slowly but surely your essence became sucked up by the nation that had captured you. You're worshiping their idols, you're talking their language, you're following their customs. And if their customs are contrary to the Ten Commandments given by Moses in 1500 B.C., then it really didn't matter anymore because this other nation is dictating what you believe and what you shall follow. For a period of time, God came and the people's captivity was brought to an end only to return for 400 years. The bones known as the Israelites have lost all their life because the essence of their life, namely God himself, is gone. If I ask you what your life was, what would you tell me? My life is the songs that I like to listen to. My life is television programs I like to follow. My life are the hobbies and the things that bring me joy, the things that I engage in, the things that make life more enjoyable. But if I ask you in a very deeper sense what your life is, would you point to him? We spent 10 weeks during Red Sea Rules talking about life and the fact that life 
as joyous as it can be at times, life can get messed up. And those are the Red Sea moments that come. They're messed up financially. They're messed up relationship-wise. They're messed up health-wise. What is your life then when the things that you would declare to be your life, to bring joy to you, to make life enjoyable, what happens then when something of such import comes that your life is so disturbed that the things that brought you joy and peace no longer have the power to do that? What is your life then? Is it not him? And has it not always been him? John said, I have come for one reason, and that's to preach repentance unto salvation. There are two types of repentance. Are you ready? Repentance number one. This change called alcohol, I haven't touched it in seven years. This chain called pornography, I haven't watched it in eight years. This chain called infidelity, he or she has been out of my life for 18 years. Repentance on the surface, coming from you. I have made a determination that these chains will no longer be in my life because I want my life returned to me. It's disturbing me. It's disturbing my family. It's disturbing everything. It's a surface repentance. Very important, very important to get rid of those chains. But it's a surface repentance. Let me explain. Two weeks ago, you could hardly wait to get all the Christmas stuff out, right? Spirit of Christmas was there in spite of COVID virus. We're going to get everything out. We're going to put it all up. Well, in about 18 days, you're going to say, let's take it down, man. I'm tired of it. I need my chair back where it was and my, and my couch back where it was. Let's just get this house back to normal. Okay, that's, that's one month. The spring will come and the breath of spring will be in the air and you'll see flowers coming up. And this crazy thing that's part of our culture called spring, not spring training, but spring cleaning uh, will take place. Time to get rid of all this stuff, all of this clutter. I need a fresh start. I need to breathe deeply without all these encumberments. Repentance in one light can be exactly that. Here's my chain. I'm going to get rid of my chain. I'm part of Alcoholism Anonymous. I've got all these books I've read. Here's how I'm going to do this. As important as that repentance is, it is not the repentance that John was talking about. Because the repentance he was talking about starts from the heart's doesn't look at the chain, it looks at God. Repentance that comes from the heart has only one focus, and it's not I've got to get rid of alcohol, or I've got to get rid of this, that, or the other. The focus of a repentance that comes from the heart is focus, is God, not anything else. And when the focus is on God, then the power and the strength for change comes from Him. I'll give you a great irony. Luke 15, 10. 
It says the angels in heaven rejoice over every sinner who repents. Angels rejoice only twice in the Bible. Once when they announce the birth of Jesus. And this episode, Luke 15, 10, angels in heaven rejoice over every sinner who repents. Why do the angels rejoice when a sinner repents? Because then the angel says, his death was not wasted. On Mary, on Ted, on Sam, on King David, on the Apostle Paul, on Roger, on Marianne. When a sinner repents, his death was not wasted. His blood was not shed in vain. And you say, my goodness gracious, the angel has to be going crazy because every second a person repents. Listen carefully. The repentance talked about in Luke 15.10 is not a superficial repentance. I'm sorry I cussed at you. The repentance in Luke 15.10 is attached to the prodigal son. And now we get to the meat of the matter. Prodigal son lying half dead, he says this. He says, my father is 200 miles away. And if I get to my father, he'll forgive me. Prodigal son did not say, man, I'm sharing food with pigs. This is enough of this, man. Alcohol gone, drugs gone, women gone. He didn't say that. He said, my father is waiting for me 200 miles away. And when I come to him, he'll forgive me. There was no superficial repentance with the prodigal son. He was struck to the heart. And his focus was not on drugs or alcohol or wild women. His focus was on his father. And that is why it says immediately after the story of the prodigal son, that's why it says the angels in heaven rejoice over every sinner whose heart has led them to repentance. You might go back to alcohol in a weak moment. You also realize that though alcohol is no longer in your life, there's still an emptiness there. You conquered that addiction, but there's still an emptiness there. Thief on the cross. Go to him all the time, right? He wasn't looking at the fact that he had wasted his entire life or he would not have had the audacity To say to Jesus, believe in you, forgive me, remember me when you come into your kingdom. If he was looking at his wasted life, if he was looking at all the times he had been arrested and sitting there in jail, if he had looked at all the houses he had broken into, if he had looked at his life, he would not have had the audacity to say to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He wasn't looking at his life situation. He was looking at his father. And his father wasn't 200 miles away like the prodigal son's father. His father was hanging there on a cross six feet away from him. And he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Uh, 
a repentance from the hearts. Because as he's hanging there dying, the Holy Spirit comes and does his work. Jesus spoke a parable in Mark chapter 4. He talks about a sower sowing seed. Some seed falls by the wayside. Birds come and grab it before it ever has a chance to do anything. Other seed falls uh, among rocks, and it, it has roots that go down, but the rocks choke it out, and it cannot live and exist. Other seed falls among thorns, and it grows and, and gets some depth to it, and then the thorns devours life. But some seed falls on good soil, and when that seed falls on good soil, the seed goes down to the heart, and the bounty is 30, 60, 100-fold. And Jesus explained. He said, God can come to you on the surface. You can hear the word as you're doing this morning online or in this building. You can hear the word. And then uh, half of you is figuring out your grocery shopping for the rest of the day. And, and another half of you are thinking about, you know, when's he going to stop, man? I got Christmas stuff to do. Or you're listening to the word and you're saying, man, this is great. This is great. God is real. And you go out there and you try and get into traffic and no one lets you in. And all of a sudden, man, whatever seed you got in here, it's gone. Or you have the seed and it, and it gets down into you and rocky soil, right? And, and thorns, right? The seed grows. It grows for four or five or six months, grows for a couple of years. And then Jesus said, the cares of the world come or desire for wealth comes. One of those two things. You've been a Christian for two years. Your wife gets cancer. Man, you ain't got time for Christianity anymore. You got bigger fish to fry. You ain't got time to be studying about God anymore. I got, uh, I got oncologists to study, and I got to get online and see what these treatments are going to do. He's gone. Instead of being the most central part of that battle, he's gone. Or you sit there and, and you're a Christian and all of a sudden, you know, you lose your job seven months, uh, seven years into being a Christian and all of a sudden you can't pay the bills and all of a sudden you got more important things to worry about. But for the seed that falls upon a soil that the Holy Spirit has prepared and that seed sinks down real deep, that soil is a heart that has been captured by God. And when the heart's been captured by God, then the important thing is not that the addiction that is gone is gone. The important thing is the one that gives fullness to life is here. And the time you spend on this earth, it's, it's different now. And the talents that you have you use them and see them differently. And the treasures that God has given you, paycheck that God has given you, you look at it differently. You sit and say, how can I use my time, my talents, and my treasures for him? You're in high school, God's captured your hearts. 
And all of a sudden, peer pressure doesn't mean that much to you because your focus is not on them, it's on him. And if there is someone in the locker next to you who has lost a great deal of weight, shadows under his or her eyes, because your heart's been captured by him, you're no longer thinking about peer pressure and what others are going to say if you go to this person. You don't even think about that. All you think about is him, God, and how he's captured your heart and you want to bring some semblance, as much as God enables you, to bring some semblance of God, his peace, his power, into this other person's life. John the Baptist said, I have come to make straight the path to the Lord. And he means everything the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, the Medo-Persians, everything they have brought to the culture which takes you away from Jehovah, that has to go away. You have to declutter. And your focus has to be on him. Paul put it this way, run with perseverance, the race set before you, fixing your eyes, not on your addiction, run with perseverance, the race set before you, fixing your eyes, not on your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, run with perseverance, the race set before you, fixing your eyes on not your favorite hobby. Run with perseverance the race set before you, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our salvation, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and now sits down at the right hand of God. Closing word, Romans 12. There is an operation that is mentioned in the Bible. It's only mentioned one time as a specific operation. Though the physician is often mentioned. Romans 12, 2. Don't be conformed to this world. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind and heart. An operation done by the Holy Spirit of God because no man could do it. And when the operation is done, then you are transformed. Transformed to the point, Romans twelve seventeen, that you can actually say to your enemies, I forgive you, as Jesus did on the cross. That you can actually bless those who curse you. That you can actually return no man evil for evil. I love what Drew picked as the opening call to worship. Because it tells you how life should be led. Be kind, compassionate, merciful, graceful. And it can only happen if your heart's been changed. And that can only happen if the Holy Spirit has captured you for God. In our Savior's name, amen. Heavenly Father, the stories are there in the Bible.
to show us certain things. Some things we can see readily. Some things we have to go deeper to find the meaning. And to understand that the prodigal son was looking for his father, not for the removal of addictions that had grabbed hold of him. He was looking for his father. If he had been looking at his addictions and said, I can conquer them, or if he had said, they've gotten the best of me, his eyes would have been nowhere near the father, the source of power and love and wisdom. But since they were focused on him, he could travel with a strength beyond himself those hundreds of miles, have the audacity, as did the thief on the cross, to lay himself down at his father's feet and say to him, forgive me. And the prodigal son's father had not a moment to think about it. He got the boy up, wrapped his arms around him. And the thief on the cross, Jesus didn't say to him, give me five minutes, let me, let me think this through. It was just automatic with the greatest joy in Jesus' heart. And so it is for me and for each of us, Lord, when we come to you in repentance and it comes from the heart, then it's not only the angels in heaven that rejoice, but it is our Lord and Savior who has boundless joy that his blood has saved yet one more for the kingdom. May it be so this Advent season and far beyond. In our Lord's name, amen.